Hello everyone and welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show where we demonstrate that everything, simply everything in the entire world that you can possibly think of, has a history. Like footballs, armadillos and pottery. Or pardons, gardens and lardons. Doesn't quite rhyme but you know what I'm getting at. Or beads, reeds and seeds. It's all about the history of horticulture. It's all about new life. And of course, as always, we will be following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, who knew that the history of mud is in fact all about rejuvenation and beauty, politics and poetry, insults and the truth, if the mud sticks, hippopotami and zoos, and of course, World War One and the trenches. Or that the history of broken promises, which we've just done as part of our homeschooling series, is all about the gunpowder plot. It's also all about US presidents during the 20th century going back on their promises. It's about courtship in the 17th century. It's about Nick Leeson and the banking crisis and so much more. Sam, I want to do rainbows, bread, beards, sleep and stupidity. <laughs> Good. I want to do all of those as well. Um, I, I, I want to do dressing up, unfairness and chickens. Ooh. Those are my next ones. Oh, very good. Very yeah, good. The, ladies Seeds. and gentlemen, the man, the man not sitting opposite me, we are um, away from each other because we are recording in lockdown. We're on the other side of the city of Exeter. He is the forked tongue, the crossed eyes of history. He's the devilish swine himself. He is Professor Extraordinaire of Early Modern British History at Plymouth University. It's James Daybell. Hello, James. Hello, Sam. And the man sitting opposite me is a knave, a scoundrel, a coxcomb varlet, a knave, all in one. In fact, your mama is so fat, you can see her from space. In fact, your mama is so stupid, she climbed a glass wall to see what was on the other side. In fact, your mama is so poor, when I asked her why she kicked a dustbin down the street, she said she was moving. Yes, you've guessed it. It's the famous historical adventurer, <laughs> Dr. Sam Willis. I literally don't know where to begin with what you've just said. <laughs> but luckily, we're doing a podcast on the history of insults. So yes. maybe we'll start with I was, that. I was particularly pleased with that. It took me a long time to come up with that. <laughs> Where do we go with the history of insults, Sam? Oh, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Um, whose idea was this? I think it was mine. Uh, it was mine because, as always during lockdown, I'm trying to read as widely as possible. And I was thumbing through my bookshelf, if you can thumb through a bookshelf. I'm not sure you can. But I was. let's just imagine me running my thumb across the bookshelf. And I came across a book called Strumpets and Ninnycocks. Name-calling in Devon, 1540 to 1640, by the brilliant Todd Gray. If you don't know Todd Gray, Todd Gray is the most amazing historian of Devon. He has an encyclopedic knowledge of it, and this book is excellent. So that's why we're doing it, because it gave me an excuse to read it, and it was a rollicking good read. Yeah, I think the starting point here is that you may be surprised, but you, uh, yes, insults do have a history and they do have a history according to location and time. So you absolutely can not only talk very briefly or, or however long about um, the history of insults in Devon in the Tudor period, but you can do it on anywhere, basically, so that everywhere has different insults. They've all changed over time and that is what makes them have a history. Yes. For me, it's all about gloves, Sam. Um, I have to <laughs> admit, it comes, it's all the way... 
back to gloves. So you can insult people through a glove. You can whack somebody over the face with a glove and you can cause a duel. So we go into in, in insults and insulted honour and the whole sort of protocol of the duel. You can, you can proffer somebody, a take off your glove and proffer them a bare hand with a ring, as Elizabeth I might do, to show particular a particular sort of fondness for a particular ambassador, or, as in the 17th century in Poland, you could not do such a thing to express displeasure and to insult somebody, as in the case of Vladislav IV Vassa, who, in 1644, held out a gloved hand to one of the burrs of Krakow to kiss. And this was a, a gesture of royal displeasure and insult. Rather than proffering him a bare hand to kiss, he was giving him a smelly old glove hand and thus giving him an insult. Hmm. I, I like that. Yes. I like that a lot. I mean, I, I thought about this in a, a number of ways and one of the things that struck me is what we're actually talking about here. So what actually is an insult? What we've been doing is verbal insults mm. and you can have verbal insults and the historian is often um, stuck with the written word, but obviously you can have physical insults yes. as well, which might be lost to the historical record. So I thought there would be a fascinating history in that. There is. Uh, pulling down your trousers and <laughs> your backside is a, you know, mood, the history of mooning uh, is a, is is an obvious gestures like that and hand gestures, um, you know, V's um, flicking your chin, um, you know, doing all sorts of gestures that are rude and insulting to insult people. And and it's actually a classical art, a classical art of how to offend somebody. It's all about oratory and the role of invective. You know, look at your your Cicero, and 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 you can see all sorts of things there. So it's it, you know, people actually are are extremely can be extremely skilled in it. And I think there's a distinction to be made between people just being rude and uncouth and trying to be unpleasant to people, and then and that can have gestures, it can be swearing, it can be all sorts of offensive behaviour. But then also, as with the with the with the monarchs, there's also a careful sort of. Um, inverting of protocols and deviance from protocols of politeness that basically offend in a subtle way and you can That's imagine really you can imagine this being used in diplomacy so when you want to show that you are offended or that you are cool to somebody what you might do is you might at a at a banquet you might place the ambassador who normally would be treated in a very sort of you know kowtowing way you might place him elsewhere you know, you might sit him next to a boar. You might, you know, so yeah. so you can play with it. You can play with it like that. And I think certainly with the gloves there, to make a serious point, that's exactly what's happening. It's playing yeah. with those protocols. So so an insult is only an insult when it is taken as an insult. I mean, an, yes. inter an interesting. Okay, no, thing. that's a really good point. So you don't, if you if you don't agree with the insult, like say so, say someone calls you a moron or whatever. This is the very basic way of mm. putting it. And you go, well, I'm actually not a moron. Therefore, you've not been insulted because you don't agree with what's been said. So or, there's, um, or you may think you're a moron and agree with the person and therefore are not insulted by it. Ah, <laughs> that's really interesting. So you've both you've both got to agree and be hurt by it. Yes, it's also about the it's also about the history of thick skin. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so I I have a I have a very thin skin and and you you only need to prick me and I bleed. Um, but um, you know there are people who famously 
just have enormously thick skins and don't know when people are being rude to them. I mean, partly because they're not listening to them in the first yeah. place. So we talked very briefly there about um, physical insults, which is interesting. Um, and then there's the whole uh, drawing as well. So it doesn't just have to be uh, a physical action. It doesn't have to be words written down, but you can have drawings as well. And that raises a, 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 an entire area of historical sources, which are, which are political cartoons, essentially. Oh, lovely. Um, the best being, well, the best, you know, one of the most famous ones is Gilray, a very famous 18th century cartoonist, one of the most famous cartoonists in history. And he would, in mockery, I think, is one important aspect of these insults, isn't it? And yeah. He would very famously mock anyone. And uh, above all, he was very, very happy mocking, the, mocking, the, mocking royalty. And I don't think that happens so much nowadays. Um, it's quite interesting if you think about it. I mean, he was quite, he, he very famously, he drew um, both George III and Queen Charlotte on the loo, which is quite a serious thing. And they're, they're both in the middle of, um, of, of going to the loo. Um, and then the, the whole process of that is in this cartoon, accelerated, I think is the phrase, by uh, the entrance of the Prime Minister, Pitt the Younger, who bears news of, of the King of Sweden's assassination, which causes them to unload. <laughs> but this is um, one sort of aspect of him being willing to to do what some might do, essentially to, to, to sort of threaten or challenge the uh, the reputation, the honour, whatever it might be, of the royal family. So the one aspect to the history of insults is who you can insult in a public setting and mm. kind of get away with it. And that is, um, there is a religious side to that story. Can um, Islam particularly very sensitive to having Muhammad being insulted? Um, and there's the, so there's religious side to it. There's this royal side to it, a whole status side to it as well. Fascinating stuff. Yeah, yeah. I wonder whether that royal, whether the 18th century, 19, early 19th century, sort of lampooning monarchy and maybe being different from nowadays is because of the diminished political power of the monarchy. So if you think about the queen nowadays, it's largely a figurehead, but yet you look at political figures like the prime minister, the cabinet the opposition and they probably would be treated in that kind of way so it's maybe a sort of historical demise or, or decline in power of the of the monarchy but those people who are right at the center of power still um and are you know involved in day-to-day -day politics are so still reckon, vilified i mean george, george the third was was famously lampooned a lot and insulted mm. in the press a lot mm -hmm. and particularly his son was george yeah. the, george yeah. the fourth who was a bit of a bit of a player he was um, mercilessly lampooned by the press particularly for his sex for his sex life yeah um and i suspect that they might have they may not have been born with thick skins they might have grown thick skins when they realized it was something they couldn't do about in the press but the, the whole idea of whether insulting some, someone matters is absolutely fascinating, and that changes over time. And one of the ways to look into this is um, it's a very famous French film of the 1990s, which won uh, several awards, including the best film in France and the best film not in the English language at Cannes. It's a film um, called Ridicule, and it was set in the early 1780s, so during the period of Louis XVI. And the whole film was about how easy it was to insult people in life and insulting was actually a kind of a form of amusement an acceptable form of amusement really really harsh insulting 
uh, which then disappeared after the French Revolution. So this is a decade before the French Revolution's at its highest. It's a it's a it's describing a world, a sort of a social world which changed after the French Re Revolution. And historians have identified it. It's like an erosion of a certain type of comedy and how some people took it very seriously and others um Others didn't. So almost like kind of cruel comedy, which had gone and how that is seen as a form of social progress as the French Revolution um, comes in. Now, what's interesting about it is how um, this is wonderful quote at the beginning. In this country, vices are without consequence, but ridicule can kill. So you've got this uh, open um, sort of challenging the two differences between people living in a very hedonistic world, but also being unbelievably bitter to each other. And the bitterness is what could absolutely cause cause trouble. One character commits suicide after his repeated public humiliations, and another is so wounded by a remark after they've fallen over on a dance floor uh, that he actually goes into exile. He abandons his family. He goes into exile, never to be seen again. And you have these regular parties and gatherings which are punctuated by constant ridicule. It's like the, the sort of the social court of what's happening in and around the king in France in the 1780s is a complete minefield. We're just waiting for people to get wrong. And so everyone can then just just charge in and, and pick holes. I've mixed my metaphors there terribly, but you get the <laughs> idea. It was very, very dangerous indeed. Yes. Your mama. I want to talk about the origin of your mama jokes. Um, there was a there was a there was a point in putting that in the introduction because I, this is something I've actually been slightly obsessed with for a, for for a while. Partly because um, I, I just think it's it's so interesting. It's a big part of of African American culture in in the US, and they play a game called the dozens which is a spoken game between two people where they basically challenge each other. It's basically like a slanging match uh, until they until they give up, uh, you know, until they've basically made such appalling insults to the other person. They've ridiculed them to such a degree that they can't take it anymore. But there's a fascinating history with this. And if you look at it in the, in the way in which it operates in the, the present day, they, there are various sort of different sort of um, terms for it. Your mama, your mama, your mama, your mom, your mum, your mum, your mama. And that's the that's my favourite, your mama. And they're all sorts of insults involving somebody's mother that often um, is, as I as you probably guessed from my um, my introduction, is about insulting her, either that she's sexually promiscuous, that you are a bastard, uh, that she's fat, that she's too tall, that she's hairy, lazy, that she's poor, that she's smelly, she's unattractive, she's stupid. This actually has a quite a, a long history. Um, I remember uh, when I was at school, when I were a lad, um, I remember two boys getting into a fight with each other and they were asked by the teacher, uh, why were they uh, why were they in this sort of conflict together? And one one little boy said, um, because he said, my mum don't make nice chips. <laughs> so it's a sort of, a, a sort of um, early 1980s sort of version of Yo Mama jokes. But one of the oldest examples uh, of a Yo Mama joke comes um, from Babylonia in uh, 
3,500 BCE. <laughs> wow. And they found a tablet with all sorts of um, inappropriate jokes on it that revolve around death, around drinking too much beer, around mothers. And it's actually very difficult to it's actually very difficult to read these kind of tablets. So what we're dealing with is sort of little fragments of, of information and archaeologists and and scholars who look at this kind of thing are reliant on their great skills to sort of piece it all together. But one of the fragments that they that they discerned uh, reads of your mother is by the one who has intercourse with her. What or who is it? So it's basically, you know, it's basically questioning the parentage of that particular person. But we also can look to Shakespeare for your mama jo jokes. So if you have a look in his play, Timon of Athens, and you look at Act One, Scene One. <laughs> never um, heard of it. Okay. Literally uh, never heard of it. implying that the character's mother is a bitch. So the character painter says, um, Yara Dog. And then um, Aitmanthus says, thy mother's of my generation. What she if I be a dog? And it's also, there's also a reference to uh, a Yo Mama joke in Titus Andronicus in Act 4, Scene 2, where Eren taunts his lover's sons. Uh, Demetrius says, villain, what hast thou done? Aaron, that which thou canst not undo. Shiran, thou hast undone our mother. Aaron, villain, I have done thy mother. <laughs> <laughs> and also in 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 popular culture, uh, well, probably one of the most funny recent uh, your mama jokes is in Monty Python and the Holy Grail, of course, uh, this nineteen seventy five film where one of the French soldiers yells, "Your mother was a hamster, and your father smelt of elderberries." <laughs> so there's this there's a huge sort of you know, uh, backdrop and history uh, uh, that is obsessed with insulting somebody's mother, probably because the mother historically is always such a, a venerated, prized figure and actually attacking that and ch and challenging somebody's parentage, uh, where they came from. It's connected to sort of challenging them as a as a bastard um, is actually quite, quite, quite sort of cutting. Didn't we do an, uh, an episode on the history of mothers for Mother's mm. Day? I think we, we did. did. I, I, and re I, and I can't remember doing your mama. <laughs> no, um, but it's, uh, it's absolutely... Uh, I do remember it being a really, really, really good episode. Yes, but Shakespeare is full of insults. Um, I mean, it's just absolutely littered with it. Um, for example, um, uh, Henry V, Act 4, Scene 4... Uh, somebody is called a thou damned and luxurious mountain goat. Um, um, somebody in um, Henry the Sixth, Part Two, Act One, Scene Three, is called base dunghill villain and mechanical. Um, and then somebody, uh, somebody um, in Henry the Fourth, Part One, Act Two, Scene Four, is called a bull's pizzle. Uh, which is basically saying that is a, a bull's penis. P Pizzle means penis. Um, Henry the 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 fourth again, part two, act two, scene one. You scullion or rapalian, you fustilarian. Uh, this is uh, this is a scullion is a low-ranking drudge. A rapalian is a scoundrel, a 
and a fustilarian uh, is a Shakespearean neologism. So in other words, he's invented the word, probably meaning a fat woman. And then in King Lear, um, the character Kent uh, calls Oswald in Act Two, Scene Two, a whoreson scullionly barbermonger. <laughs> That's really good. <laughs> Excellent. Um, it's, it's interesting, the um, Shakespeare's neologisms there. He, he, he makes up words a lot, isn't he? Yes. And, yeah. um, don't assume that we all know what's happening in Shakespeare. We don't. There's a lot of stuff open to debate. And those are some very clear insults. And there are a lot of ones that fly under the radar in Shakespeare as well. You've got to keep be very, very astute to what's going on to be able to pick them all up. You've got to go back to your historical dictionaries. Now have yeah, a look at yeah. your Oxford English Dictionary and have a look at the at the terms by date and how they're used. And then you can you can do a lot of wordsmithing. If you have an Arden volume of Shakespeare, they're often glossed with notes that that help you understand how words would have been the meaning that they would have had uh, in the late 16th, early 17th century. We um, give everyone a task to do in our homeschooling episodes. And one of the tasks I would set you all, if, if this was one, would be to come up with a word, um, a new word, invent a word which would be an insult. I think that would be quite a fun thing to do. Yes. Now, James, I want to talk to you about something which is uh, significantly up your street. I, I clapped my hands together with glee when I came across it because I have a new favourite historian who's called oh. Tog Hagstedt, who wrote a book called, or he's a chapter in a book called Writing the Jewel, Rhetorical Negotiation and the Language of Honour in the 19th Century South. Mm. And it's, uh, it was published Love by the it. University of South Carolina Press in 2017. And I, listeners, I know, you may know this, but I know that James is, is fascinated by uh, the power of the written word. I think yes. we can put it this way. And if you talk about insults, you might think about duelling and 19th century honour, where people are insulted, they call each other out, and then they try and kill each other. And it's a physical process. And so much of the work that's been done on duelling has focused on the 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 actual the physical side of it. So exactly how it how it all works. But this guy, he's written about all of the the writing that went on around the business of the jewel and lovely. he's ended up concluding that the matter of honor when your honor was sullied and you called someone out to a jewel that was negotiated and settled as often or as significantly with the pen as it was with the sword or with the gun um, it's just fascinating so he's writing about um south uh, uh, the, the states of southern america um in the 19th century, which he describes as a rather uncultivated, crossbred, halfway illiterate world, which is a sentence I absolutely love. Now, what happens here is you have this initial confrontation, you have an argument, and then there are negotiations. And those negotiations over what's going to happen and how it's going to happen, those negotiations occur through writing. And we've got a wonderful example from the 1870s. Um, by a guy called Mr Kinlock and Mr Walker. They're both called George, funnily enough. 23rd of August. Some friends of Mr Kinlock and his mates, they were socialising on Sullivan's Island in South Carolina when George Walker approaches them and demands which one of them had called him a damned English son of a bitch. <laughs> so each of Kinlock's party denies uttering the insult. 
and Walker in turns declares that each of them, he, he thinks that each of them are too much of a gentleman to employ such language and eventually settles that it's on Mr. George Kinlock himself. He is the only one capable of saying something absolutely appalling. George Kinlock himself says, well, if you charge me or even mean to insinuate that I use such an expression, you are a damned liar. So the confrontation has happened. It's worth stopping and thinking, actually, that he's called him English. And this is the problem. <laughs> a damned English son of a bitch. And to call someone English in this time and in this location was to accuse them of Anglophile characteristics. And that was... Uh, set against American machismo at the time, and it was supposed to directly get at someone's sense of honour. Now, what happens over the next few days is what's really interesting, because George Walker's called out George Kinlock, and Kinlock then exposes Walker as being unable to cope with the duel in the written word. And George Kidlock basically wins this duel by proving himself a more effective rhetorician. And he uses the proper format of, of a kind of established duel script, which existed, but, but it's been very hard for historians to actually find. So what happens is this. In a letter on the, October the 3rd, George Walker writes this letter and he inadvertently forgets to sign his name. As a result of this, his nominated second, a guy called Robert Royal, he withdraws from the affair. He just can't cope with it at all that the person he's supposed to be acting as second as has forgotten to sign his name on the dual document. And what happens is George Kinlock publishes the correspondence. So this is private correspondence and Kinlock publishes it, therefore privately shaming George Walker. And then, then it becomes slightly more complicated. So Walker gets furious and then he writes again. He writes this letter. At 4pm on tomorrow, the 8th instant, I shall be at the Oaks Clubhouse armed with a Colt's pistol of the kind known as a peacemaker. And if you appear there and then armed in like manner, I shall fire on you three times. Kinlock then writes back and he objects to what he describes as the absurd proposition in this letter, blurred and almost illegible with the characters. And so what happens here is that Walker has taken it on himself to select the time and the place and the weapon for the duel. And he uses what Kinlock describes as crass slang to describing his gun as a peacemaker. And also because the note was delivered in the wrong way. The letter itself was delivered contrary to duel etiquette. It was delivered without the aid of a second. So Kinlock then again publicly ridicules Walker for going through this farce. He describes it as a farce. He refuses to have anything to do with him at all. And what he does, therefore, is in the eyes of the public, his peers in the community, he, he's demonstrating Walker's failures as he sees it, his failures as a gentleman. And he never even gets the, gives, gives, gives him the chance to perform what Walker wants to do. He wants to perform a violent aspect of the, his honour culture. And Kinlock doesn't let him do it simply because he can't perform the linguistic ones. How cool is that? Very cool. And I imagine that we have those letters because this ended up in some sort of court case somewhere, yeah. a court martial, and that they were kept as evidence. So I, I love this idea of the this sort of... Um, trading insults through letters. And I have a slightly more modern example for you from 1993. There's a wonderful 
uh, collection of letters called Letters of Note. In fact, it's not just one volume. It's a series of volumes now. It's a brilliant series. Uh, I recommend you all buy a copy of it because it's just full of letters from across history. And one of the examples that I came across when I was leafing through it was a really splenetic exchange between the British writer Julie Birchall and the American academic uh, Camille Paglia. And they had basically fallen out um, and then traded blows via fax. And I think they'd fallen out over something sort of slightly, you know, trivial. I think um, Camille was approached to write for something that um, Julie Birchall edited and Camille Paglia refused to do this because Birchall had done a negative review on her. And so what you get is these two literary heavyweights squaring up to each other and giving it full throttle. Um, I will I will censor uh, some of Julie Birchall's uh, When is this? What, what sort of time is this? 1993, James? as I explained right at the beginning as a good historian. Um, I missed that. It, Sorry. <laughs> no, no, it's... So Julie Birchall here is writing uh, over facts... Um, I'm here to tell you that you can't come on like a street tough and then have an attack of the Victorian vapours when faced with a taste of your own style. Are you so insecure that you can't get one critical review without throwing a temper tantrum? What a beep effing girl you are. Perhaps it's because you got famous so late. One day you'll learn it comes with the territory. Julie Birchill. And then Paglia replies going, I have already gathered from my contacts in the London media and even from the Modern Review itself that many people are tired of your bullying and pretensions. I have no intention of publicly attacking you except where I am specifically asked to by reporters since I don't view you as that important in the world scheme but there are many ways I can help others expose you. Your coarse and unskilled letter is yet another way you have wounded yourself and I will make sure it is widely seen. <laughs> Isn't that brilliant? <laughs> wow. Isn't that brilliant? I want to end, however, uh, with a little read through Todd Gray's book because I think this is absolutely excellent. You should all go out and buy a copy of Strumpets and Ninnycocks. It's based on church court records uh, that are held in Exeter. And the reason that you might end up in the church courts is for all sorts of things. But the church courts at the time in the 16th century would police all sorts of social matters, including defamation. And this is where we get at insults. So people who feel themselves defamed can go to court and they can... Um, they can accuse somebody of having said something rude about them or insulted them, challenged their honour. And then what's fascinating about it is that from the court, we get these enormously long depositions, which record more or less word for word. I mean, they are sort of it's clerkly language often, but they are it's word for word, the words of ordinary people. So you can recover this sort of level of insults and you would be amazed the kind of variety of insults. I mean, you think about how we name call today and it's often related to parts of the body. It's sort of genitalia, the face, the shape of the body. But 
400 or 500 years ago, people were much more original and mocked people for low intelligence and physical characteristics. There's all sorts of colourful language. And also, there are the kinds of gestures that you were talking about earlier on, Sam. Uh, people, you know, poke out their backsides, they wear hats in the wrong way, they stick out tongues, they fart, they spit, they gurn, they urinate. All of these things can be used to insult people. And all of this comes through in the in the court cases. And there are hundreds of cases, but one that I want to share with you took place after a disagreement in 1619 at Exeter, where we both live, and wounding words were passed between John Newcomb, a cloth maker, and one John Harrison, a joiner, and progressed into the Guildhall where justices were told that these men and their wives had engaged in extensive and colourful name-calling. Harrison had apparently called Newcomb a cod's head, and by this he probably meant that Newcomb was stupid but also he was possibly referring to the cod in the sense of another word for scrotum. So, you know, a really sort of sexual insult to him. Harrison's wife was told that she had the pox and was said to be balding because of the disease. And it was suggested her backside needed a plaster to cover the pustules. She was also called a drunkard and had been so overcome at the home of one Marion Atkins that, and I quote, she had pissed where she sat. Harrison then compared himself with a man named Chollocum, who'd been dragged on a hurdle through the street. So sort of, sort of you know, riotously sort of dragged through the streets in very unceremonious um, manner. And so they were, you know, they were very sort of sharp words being used against these people. And what's fascinating is the huge variety of ways of insulting people. People were called drunkards, beggars, witches. They were called knaves, rogues, rascals, slaves, varlets, suckers, fools, asses, coxcombs, woodcocks, calves, bulls, lubbers, lobs, loggerheads, puppies, jackanapes, ninnyhammers, ninnypoops, bullsheads. There were all sorts of crimes about people being scolds, mayors and councillors were insulted, civil court officials such as constables, the bishop was insulted, rectors, vicars, clerks, clerks' wives and their children, Christians insulted each other. One of the biggest categories is actually around sexual insults. So people accused of incest and disease, men accused of being whoremongers, cuckolds, whittles, braggers, Women, uh, the, the, the range of language used to insult women is quite extraordinary. Challenges to their sexual honour. And this is actually what leads to a lot of slander litigation. Women taking other women into court. There's a brilliant book um, called Domestic Dangers uh, by a brilliant historian uh, called Laura Gowing. And when I was a, a PhD student, this was one of the best books that I that I read at the time. It's really, really good. And it gives you this real sense of what life would have been like in Elizabethan and Jacobean London on the doorstep with these women interacting with each other. And of course, in a society that valued chastity so much, your sexual honour was something to be really, really prized. But the range of vocabulary used to defame women who could be called strumpets, minks, 
punks, mares, sluts, kirtles, drabs and jacks, bitches, whores, hackneys, queens, jades, is absolutely extraordinary. The language of slander is so inventive and toxic. And so it gives you a sense of how slander fits into, slander and insult fits into the everyday life of of the, the 16th and 17th century. There we go, yeah. Sam. I could go on forever. Um, yeah, no, absolutely. And, and you know, the, the obvious contrast to that is you've got everyday lives. You've also got insults between nations. I found some wonderful examples of insults, particularly between uh, the British government and the Chinese at the beginning of the Opium Wars in the 1840s. And that is a, a perfect example of the clash of East and West and um the misunderstanding, the cultural misunderstanding, the taking of insults, which were not insults, but also the very, very open insults, lots of flags being fired upon, insults within a military sphere, within a political sphere, are is hugely fascinating. And that's something I could also talk about for an hour and a half myself. Yeah, yeah. Nevertheless, I have enjoyed that, James. Yes. Before we go, um, the term minion is an insult. We all enjoy the film Minions. Um, and the Despicable Me. Uh, did you know that in the Elizabethan period, it could be an insult to a woman? To describe her as a rogue, strumpet and minion uh, is basically to say that she is a woman who is kept for sexual favours. Did you know that? Mm, no, you have to be I very didn't. careful calling people a minion. I should not call my wife a minion. No, no. Terrible. <laughs> that would be the starting point. Guys, thank you all so much for listening. I hope you've enjoyed it. Please check out, pe out patreon.com forward slash histories of the unexpected if you'd like to help us out on our mission to change the way we all think about the past. It's quite a big goal and we're doing our best and uh, we're spending a great deal of time at the moment and anything you could do to help us out would be absolutely fantastic. Do also please check out historiesoftheunexpected.com for everything else we have got on um, our book, our series of books, which is great. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm Dr. Sam Willis. And you can follow me at James Daybell and you can follow the podcast on at Unexpected Pod. Um, apart from that, guys, do please get in touch with us on social media. We'd love to hear all of your stories, all of your suggestions for episodes. We know you're out there um, in your many, many thousands and uh, we really, really enjoy speaking to you. I hope you've had a nice day. Bye-bye, guys. Bye, guys. Stay safe. Stay well. See you soon. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details.